But Tom Wright is a dearly loved man. He comes to many of us through his books. He's authored over 100 books and is working in this life of Paul at a great depth and breadth. Oh, I'm hearing someone. Oh, Tom, you and I are already working together. Come on up. N.T. Wright has uh, essays and sermons and books in which he has become a, a helpful thought leader, uh, articulator of this person of Jesus, this life of Paul. So we're delighted, Tom, that you're here to help us in our conversation around Simply Jesus, helping us out with that title as well. So uh, welcome to this group. You all set? Can we, just pause? Can we just pause and pray, please? Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew us and all the world. Amen. Thank you for your invitation, for your welcome. Uh, not for these bright lights, which as somebody said yesterday means I can't see any of you, but never mind. Hopefully you can see me in triplicate at least. And uh, it's, I'm grateful to Carl Mediaris because he's emailed me more times in the last six months than everybody else put together. And that's a lot of hard work to put this whole gathering together and to get me on stage at this moment. And of course, it was a clever trick because by calling the conference Simply Jesus, which was the title of one of my recent books, he kind of forced my arm. And it was occurring to me as I was coming here this morning, this is a dangerous precedent because out of those, I thought it was 70 books, not 100, but never mind, there's plenty of other catchy titles among those books. And I cannot promise that if you organize a gathering or a conference and give it the title of one of those books, I will necessarily show up because I would need to multi-locate in order to do that. Anyway, uh, 10 years ago, I wrote, oh, 12 years ago, I wrote that little book, The Challenge of Jesus. And then a couple of years ago, the publisher said, we'd really like you to do a book called Simply Jesus. And, you know, it's been a while, so why don't you just run that and see what happens? And I thought it sounded like a good idea. And I said to my wife, publisher wants me to do another book on Jesus. And she looked at me with that sort of typical spousely, uh, so you really are crazy now look. And she said, uh, has Jesus changed in the last 10 years? And, <laughs> And I thought for a moment and I said, no, but maybe I have. Because over those 10 years, I was Bishop of Durham for most of that time and was working, uh, I was going to say at the coalface, that's almost not a metaphor in the northeast of England, except that all the mines shut down because uh, Margaret Thatcher decreed that after the miners' strike, they should all basically be wiped out. And the, the communities that I was serving included a lot that for 20 years at least had been socially, culturally decimated, lots of third-generation male unemployment, lots of very serious social, cultural issues, and nobody was addressing them, and the church was there in place after place. And as I was watching that network film just now, my mind went back to the last Holy Week that I spent in the Diocese of Durham, and each Holy Week, I would go to a particular parish and spend the week with those people in that parish. I would have my purple cassock on, I'd walk around the streets and I'd bump into people and I'd go into the hairdressers, have my hair cut, I'd go into the pub and have lunch, I'd go into the library and chat to people there, whatever. 
And uh, one morning, I arrived for the early morning service at the church which was on the main high street that's on Stockton-on-Tees. And uh, one of the things which, as a bishop, I was always really rather keen on was when I got somewhere, I wanted the clergy to be organized and ready so that we didn't have to hang around wondering what was going on, but the service would just proceed. So here we were for a morning Eucharist at, I think, 7.30 in the morning. And I come in maybe five minutes before the service, and instead of being ready, there is the, the, the vicar, who is a very good man, wonderful guy, but he was standing uh, at the far end of the church, and he was chatting seemingly casually to a young man with a baseball cap that was pulled down over his head, and all my old-fashioned Anglican instincts are, how on earth can this young man not know that he's in a church and he should take his hat off? You know, this is just basic. And the vicar should have told him. And I'm sort of saying, no, don't be so stupid. There must be something going on here. And I get up to where Alan the vicar is and this young man, and Alan turns around and says, Tom, I'm sorry, I haven't had time to prepare uh, the bits and pieces for the Eucharist yet because this is, I can't remember his name, so-and-so. He was an asylum seeker from somewhere in the Middle East who was a Christian who'd managed to escape from persecution and he'd come to the UK and our blessed government and home office were wanting to deport him and Alan had been organizing which church member was gonna go with him to his tribunal that day. And so Alan said, sorry, I, I just haven't been preparing for the Eucharist because I was... I said, Alan, you have been preparing for the Eucharist. I said, that is what we're all about. Because that when we, as often as you break the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes, and the death of the Lord means that the power of evil and corruption and decay has been broken. And it is our task to make that defeat of evil a radical reality in the lives of all those to whom we're called to go and whom we're called to serve. And that was just one, I, I could tell you story after story, and I may tell one or two more, but our time is reasonably short. And uh, that is, of course, talking about Jesus. But if you invite a New Testament scholar to talk, you, talk to you about Jesus, you expect to do a bit of history, and that's what we're going to do. Um, Philip Yancey said yesterday that Jesus isn't simple, he's complicated, and I agree with that. And then one of the other speakers yesterday afternoon said that Jesus isn't complicated, he's simple, and I agree with that too. Because... Um, <laughs> true that There is a false simplicity where you just go to some subject and pick the one little bit which happens to resonate with you and say, oh, it's basically simple, it's just about this. And, and you just forget all the rest. That's false simplicity. True simplicity is when you've taken on board all that complexity as much as you can and lived with it and soaked yourself in it, and then you come back and you say, this is really where it's at. And we are all striving after that simplicity, but it doesn't do us any good to, to forget the complexity that inevitably is that when I was writing that book, Simply Jesus, I thought, yeah, sure, publishers asked me to do this. I lecture about Jesus. I talk about Jesus. I make some notes. I want to say this and this and this. And thought, Actually, I need to say that and that and that. Oh, heavens, then I'm forgetting this bit. And, and then I thought, okay, I've got these sort of 10, 15 main topics, whatever they were, on the paper. Uh, what I now need to do is go and spend a couple of days doing nothing but reading through the Gospels and just reminding myself of the flow and the drift and the movement of it story after story after story in the Gospels was clamoring for inclusion. It was saying to me, you can't miss this bit out. You must bring in that bit. I'm thinking, this can be a long book. Um, <laughs> and that's not what the name of the game was. But we need to be constantly doing that. Of course, Philip Yancey also said, 
every other question he was asked, oh, well, N.T. Wright's going to deal with that tomorrow, um, <laughs> which <clears throat> I, the, the, the only way I can possibly pay him back is to say, if you ask me questions about hair, the answer is Philip will deal with that. <laughs> and, But one of the questions that we didn't deal with yesterday and that I just think is vital to get on the table is this business of how has our Western culture conditioned the way we look at Jesus, the kind of questions we ask about him, and so on. Because I actually believe this is hugely important and that the, the whole business of the history of ideas of the Western world and not least of your bit of the Western world in this wonderful country of yours, the, these things have conditioned us far more than we realize. Because in the 18th century, and of course your country was born in the 18th century when somebody called Thomas Jefferson and co, they invented this idea that uh, we're all going to be deists now, which means that heaven and earth are split off from one another. And this was, of course, partly a way of getting rid of the former colonial power. We will draw a discreet veil over that. And uh, <clears throat> the idea is God is upstairs. He's a long way away. If you want to get to know God, that's a private matter. You do that on Sunday mornings or other times, religion is what humans do with their solitude and occasionally they get together on Sundays and pretend they're doing it together, but that's religion. And it's got nothing whatever to do with the rest of life. So we have this complete split of private and public. We have this complete split of religion and politics. We have a split between what we then call supernatural and what we call natural. That split is an 18th century heresy and we are still suffering from it. And that was played out again and again in the 19th century. And it was because of that that Darwinism meant what it meant. That's a whole story which I haven't got time to tell today. It's not my, not my topic, but it's important. But it played out in your culture, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th century, in terms of the fundamentalist versus modernist controversy which then reached one of its many high points in the Scopes trial. And you need to know if you don't know, though I expect many of you do, your country is the only country on the planet that could have had a Scopes trial because nobody else was asking those questions in that way because nobody else had lived with that kind of culture where it was either everything is supernatural and God's doing it all or everything is natural and it's just working by some process of evolution. Most people through most of history haven't had that either or. And I grieve when I see those particular splits, those particular battles now being played out in terms of your culture wars, in terms of your sharper and sharper polarizations between left and right. And your left and right are not like anybody else's left and right. I mean, you probably know all this, but just in case you don't, I want to put it on the table because this radically affects the sort of questions that you come to the Bible with, the sort of questions that you come to Jesus with. And what I've been hearing in the last 24 hours being with you is basically stuff that is protesting against a lot of this because you're getting to know Jesus, discovering Jesus, you're living with Jesus, you're following Jesus, and discovering that Jesus brings together things which in Western culture have been held apart, and that's a very, very good thing. But unless we realize how much of an uphill struggle we've got with that, 
uh, we won't see why things are as difficult as they are. So our culture wants to know, and pretty well every time I do an interview with the news media, especially here in America, they want to know, was Jesus really the Son of God? Was he really divine? And they're meaning that in terms of, was he a supernatural being who came from this other distant world and came zooming down into our world in order to do some odd stuff and then go zooming off again? And so if I say yes to that question, I am simply reinforcing the heaven-earth split in the mind of the journalists, certainly, and of the hearers. And likewise, when they ask about miracles, and especially they always ask about the virgin birth and the resurrection as though these were the same kind of thing. Because they want to know, do you believe in a God who kind of does stuff, or don't you believe in a God who does stuff? I say, of course I believe in a God who does stuff. Absolutely but not within that heaven-earth split. And the very word miracle itself in our culture now routinely means a distant, normally absent God occasionally reaching in and doing something and then going away again. That's not what the God of the Bible does. He is not absent. And so this then plays out and gives house room to quite other uh, discussions and speculations have been all over your media recently. This book by a guy called Reza Aslan uh, called Zealot, Jesus, a revolutionary, and with uh, his later followers muddling up this revolutionary message. Well, of course, we've been so confused about Jesus that that is an option that some people want to go for. I'll come back to that later. Simultaneously, in my country recently, there's a book being published, I expect it's over here as well, by somebody saying that Jesus never existed and that the whole idea of Jesus was invented by clever Romans in the 70s and 80s after the Roman-Jewish War of the 60s as a sop in order to keep the Jewish people quiet. That is just as ridiculous as seeing, that Jesus, seeing Jesus as a violent revolutionary. But you see, unless you know where you are on the map of first century history, unless you understand how they think, how they thought, then you won't be able really to address those except just by reaching for sort of automatic, oh, well, the Bible says this, therefore, which actually doesn't satisfy that many people. And of course, the whole thing gets bundled up with, is the Bible true or is the Bible not true? And uh, one of my frustrations about that is that so many people who will say rather shrilly that they believe every word in the Bible then don't seem to me forgive me, but don't seem to me often to be actually taking seriously what the Gospels themselves are saying. Because in the Bible, heaven and earth are not a long way away from one another. Heaven and earth overlap. They were made to work together. In the, in the picture of Genesis 1 and 2, God and the world are kind of strangely intimate. And then though there is the horrible fracturing that we call the fall in Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 and the flood and so on, there is the constant sense that God wants to be with his people, that God does not want heaven and earth to be a long way away from one another. And the goal of the whole thing is not the abandonment of this world and the going off to this supernatural world called heaven. That's Platonism. The goal is new creation. The last scene in the Bible is not saved souls going up to heaven, but the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. And we have colluded with the wrong eschatology, and it's affected everything that we've done. 
The challenge then for us, I think, is to learn to see the Gospels as wholes. That's difficult because the Gospels are full of this rich, dense material. And so we take this little fragment, this miracle story, this, this teaching, this parable, this little bit here, this conversation between Jesus and somebody, that's quite enough to keep us going for a week, for a sermon, maybe for a month, a series of sermons. But actually, until we've learned to see the whole story that we're telling, we're not getting it. And we have a problem here, which I wrote about in another book recently called How God Became King, that the great creeds, the Nicene and Apostolic creeds, they tell the story missing out the middle. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified. And you see, I have this picture in my mind of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John standing there and saying, uh, excuse me, we wrote quite a lot of stuff about what happened in between. And of course, the answer is the creeds were never designed as a teaching syllabus. The creeds were designed as a washing line. These are the bits of dirty linen we had to clean up, and there they are, and now we know where we are. Nobody at that stage was debating whether or not Jesus had launched the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. They were all signed up to that. That's what the Lord's Prayer is all about. But when we use the creeds as a teaching syllabus, and when, as in much evangelical theology, and I'm using that word very broadly to cover what we mean by it, what you mean by it, and even what the Germans mean by evangelisch, though that's something else, okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> we have jumped like that and said, actually, it would be enough if Jesus had been born of a virgin and died on a cross and never done anything else in between. For many, many Christians today, that would have been enough. That gives them all the salvation, all the, the, the eternal life, whatever they need. One of the things I enjoyed yesterday was that we were um, excitedly exploring all that stuff in the middle, both in terms of what Jesus was saying and in terms of what it means for us to follow him today. The challenge, my friends, is to put the whole thing together to have the Jesus who is doing the kingdom and saying, follow me, and the Jesus who is simultaneously the one who is the eternal Son of God and who, yes, was crucified out of the great love which he had for us. That's not easy to do. Each time I speak or write about Jesus, including these two short talks this morning, I come back and I say, how do we talk about kingdom and cross together because that's what the gospels do the gospels do not have a part one called jesus and the kingdom follow me and do this stuff part two called jesus and the cross he's going to die so that we can go to heaven that is simply not how the story works the story of the kingdom goes all the way through the story actually of the cross goes all the way through have you noticed right from the beginning it's there in the baptism the echoes of the servant songs of isaiah are already there it's there in mark 2 and 3 when jesus opponents start plotting against him if you read mark whole there's a line that goes all the way from there to the trial scenes in mark 14 and so on and we need to see the whole thing in full historical dimensions and when we do that i believe we discover that the divisions which we have imposed on this text gradually fall away, and that the questions which our culture has been so eager to ask about Jesus, was he the son of God, did he do miracles, etc., etc., those questions, they don't go away, but they, they come back at us quite differently. And the way I've come to say it is this. The divinity of Jesus is the key in which the music is set. It is not the tune that is being played. 
The Gospels are not written to say, Jesus was divine, Jesus was divine, Jesus was divine, sit down, shut up, get used to it. They kind of take for granted, as Paul says, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the tune that they're actually playing is, what is this incarnate God doing? And the answer is he is establishing, launching, starting off his kingdom on earth as in heaven. There is a danger that we have so emphasized the divinity of Jesus, putting a tick in that box, as those say, phew, there we're, we're okay, we're orthodox, that we've forgotten what it was that the incarnate Son of God came to do, which was this kingdom. And we've also forgotten how he came to do it, which was ultimately through the cross. Now, in order to get this straight, this is another place where I think Philip and I might have further conversations. I believe we cannot get this right without being soaked in the world of Second Temple Judaism. This doesn't mean you all have to go to college and get degrees in ancient history. That might help if some of you did. But what it means is that we have to... Sorry, it wasn't meant to be put down, Rin. It's just... It's always a, always a good thing to study ancient history because... Yeah, Paul said, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son. Wouldn't it be wonderful to study the time at the moment when it had fully come? Find out what it actually meant. Because what we need to see is, when Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, what did they hear? They heard Daniel. They heard Daniel 7. They heard Daniel 2 and they heard Daniel 9, but in the middle they heard Daniel 7. That there's a sequence of great pagan kingdoms, great monsters coming to attack the people of God. And then when the thing gets to its worst moment, God vindicates his true people. The Son of Man coming on the clouds to sit beside the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel 9, extraordinary scene which is absolutely vital for understanding the first century. In Daniel 9, Daniel in exile prays and says, look here, Jeremiah said that the exile would last 70 years it's been 70 years now, so please can we go home? And the angel comes and says, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is, yes, you will be going home. The bad news is it's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks of years. In other words, 70 times 7 years. A 490-year exile. Didn't you know that? Lots of people don't. If you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you look at document after document from the Second Temple period, there are people calculating in Jesus' day when this time of real exile would be over. Again and again, they're interpreting Daniel and other Old Testament texts around it as a way of saying, we think God's kingdom ought to be launched now. We know that the prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi have not yet been fulfilled. If you're a first century Jew, you may be living back in, in Palestine in your native land. Though a lot of Jews weren't. They were in the larger diaspora. You may be back geographically from exile, but as long as pagans are oppressing you, then the real state of socio-political theological exile is not yet over. And Jesus says... It is now, and here's how. Unless we have that narrative in our heads, we just won't get it. And where is this narrative going? It's not Jesus saying, I've got a new policy of social work and we're all going to be nice to each other and the world will be a happier place. Yeah, that would help. But it's much, much, much more than that. That is contextualized within something else. And it's not Jesus saying, if you believe in me, then when I die on the cross, and if you believe in me, then, then you'll go to heaven afterwards. No, that is a Western figment of the imagination. 
Our Western culture has been so fixated on going to heaven, and the whole gospel is about heaven coming to earth. Look at it in the Old Testament. This is why the Old Testament is so wonderful and necessary. Isaiah 11, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The child will put his hand on the snake's hole. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Look at Psalms 96 and 98. The trees of the field and the animals and everybody will rejoice because Yahweh is coming to set everything right. In the Bible it says he's coming to judge the world and we have taken judgment in a purely negative sense but of course for them judgment means what happens when the judge comes round to this village which is full of people scratching their eyes out and being cross and the judge says yes, no, yes, no, wrong, right, sorts it all out. God is coming to sort the whole thing out. And Jesus says, that's happening right now. What does it look like? What does it look like? And the greatest passage of all, Isaiah 40 to 55, I sometimes say to my students, if Isaiah 40 to 55, I've said this about many passages, but I'll say it about this one, if that passage had been lost and we'd never had it, and then somebody dug it up in a scroll in the sands of Libya or Jordan or somewhere, People around the world will be amazed. It's one of the most fantastic poems ever written. Do you read Isaiah 40 to 55 as a single great poem? You should. Just get the whole sweep of it and then go and do it again. And Isaiah 40 to 55 is all about the establishment of the kingdom of God, the fresh revelation of God in person in glory, the rescue of Israel from oppression, and then in those two last great chapters, 54 and 55, the reestablishment of the covenant with Israel, 54, and the launching of new creation, 55. As the rain and the snow come down and don't return, so will my word be that goes forth from my mouth. Instead of the thorn shall come up the myrtle, instead of the briar shall come up the cedar tree, it shall be to the Lord for a sign that shall not be cut off. The reversal of Genesis 3, the reversal of the damaged vineyard in Isaiah 5, new, new creation following on new covenant, and what's done it all? The work of the servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. I haven't got time to expand that all, but please, please, please go. Unless you get this narrative in your head, all you're doing when you're looking at the Gospels is taking little bits and reading them as though they were written in our own century to our own culture. And our culture and us as individuals, we desperately need the larger world and the fresh air which comes blowing to us like a gale from Daniel, from Isaiah, from the Psalms, and through Jesus, all of it. And the biggest story of all I could talk about this all morning and frequently do. Um, <laughs> the story in what the Jews called the Torah, the Pentateuch. How does the Pentateuch work as a narrative? First five books. Here is God at the beginning establishing this creation, and he's there with his people. And, and so that even when they sin, they hear his voice walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He's around. He's doing stuff. And he wants them, these humans, to be his agents in making it happen. That's what it means to be an image bearer. The image is not a little bit of me which reflects God back to God. The image is our vocation to be like an angled mirror reflecting God out to the world in service and love and stewardship and reflecting the world back to God in worship and praise. 
Read Revelation 4 and 5, it's all there. That's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. And then after the fall, what does God do? He calls Abraham and his family. In and through you, every family in the earth will be blessed. And the first great narrative arc of the Pentateuch goes from there to the end of Exodus, when he's rescued his people from Egypt, the whole Passover story, and then after a near disaster, well, it was a disaster, it was nearly a total disaster of the golden calf, God comes and con condescends to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the tabernacle in the wilderness is a sign of God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. And Jews read and read that story, and I wish Christians would read that story, as the first great narrative arc that this means that we are getting somewhere back to the original intention for creation. And of course, it still goes wrong because the people who are called to be the bearers of the solution turn out to be part of the problem as well. And then the larger narrative arc, which goes from Genesis through to Deuteronomy, and which says, yes, you, Israel, you are the people of God. But I know that because you are still part of the problem, the covenant will mean that God will have to send you away into exile. And then, look at it in Deuteronomy 30, at a time of God's choosing, he will convert you. He will restore you. He will transform your hearts. People in Jesus' day were saying, the Pentateuch is not the backstory. The Pentateuch is, in miniature, the whole story. Because what's going on in Israel in the first century, and Jesus is plugging right into this, and Paul is plugging right into this, is that they believed that those covenant promises might now at last be coming true. Only if we have, and this is the briefest of accounts, only if we have this in our heads and our hearts are we going to get to first base with understanding what it meant when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's try and draw that together. Jesus had a fully human consciousness of a vocation to bring Israel's story to its climax. He took the Isaiah vision, he took the Psalms vision, he took the Daniel vision, and he believed it was his job to make that happen. But it was going to happen in such a radically different way that he couldn't simply plug into things the way that they were seeing it. That's why parable after parable is, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is actually like. Because you've got your dreams of what the kingdom might be like, but actually it's different. It's like a sower sowing seed. It's like somebody finding treasure buried in a field. It's like a party where all the wrong people get invited and all the right people find they're on the outside. Dangerous stuff. He could only tell it in stories like that. He is redefining the dream of the kingdom around his grasping of that central Isianic vision, the central vision from the back end of Zechariah, of the servant who suffers, of the king who is cast away. Because Jesus knew that the kingdom couldn't come simply by people trying a bit harder. Jesus knew that the kingdom could only come through the radical defeat of the problem of evil, of sin, of death. And all the kingdom work that we do in following Jesus can only make any sense insofar as it is drawing from and building on the defeat of evil which he uh, accomplished. But therefore, the other strand which you have to have in here, which is, I think, 
the best way, perhaps the only real way of understanding what it means to talk about the divinity of Jesus is to think of God the way a first century Jew might think of God. Because you know how at the, end of, at the beginning of Ezekiel, God abandons his people, the whirling wheels of the divine throne chariot do a takeoff and they zoom away somewhere because the people have been so wicked and the priests in the temple have been so corrupt. And at the end of Ezekiel it says, he will come back. One day you will see the glory will return and will come back to the temple. Isaiah says, Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Isaiah 52, your watchmen lift up their voices and shout for joy because in plain sight they see Yahweh returning to Zion. Malachi says it, Zechariah says it. Nobody in the second temple period said it had happened yet. It's a slight overstatement, but only a slight overstatement. Ask me about it if you want to know a bit more. Jesus acted as if the answer to the question, what will it look like when Yahweh returns to Zion, will be a young prophet going around healing the sick, hugging lepers, rebuking the rich and the prosperous and the arrogant going off to the temple and doing this strange sign of devastating judgment and finally going off and dying on a cross. This is how God is becoming king. See, when we think, what would it mean for God to become human? We think of this deist God, this absentee landlord, coming down and being a sort of a supernatural guy going around doing stuff because he's God so he can, you know. That WWJD thing, what would Jesus do? I was talking with some folk a few years ago and somebody said that uh, they told their, one of their teenagers to clean out the room and uh, the teenager was being sulky about it and they said, well, what would Jesus do? And the teenager replied, that was easy. He'd just zap it clean. You know, <clears throat> that, that's, that's Jesus as Superman. The Superman culture is extremely powerful in Western culture, but it's not Christian. It's not Christian. That is not what incarnation looks like. If you want to see what incarnation looks like, read the Gospels. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He, the crucified one, is the image of the invisible God. If your God doesn't match that, you're talking about the wrong God. And that's why Jesus and politics, again, well, of course, Politics is about the polis, the city, the community, how we do stuff together. Did Jesus care about that? You bet. What's the kingdom of God all about? It's saying God's in charge now, which relativizes all human rule and authority. Doesn't abolish them. Some people think, oh, well, if God's in charge, there's no need for anything, no need for police, no need for an army, no need for magistrates, for politicians, whatever, for rulers. No. Remember Genesis, God wants humans to be his image bearers to rule and run his world for him. He will hold them to account. But if God does stuff, it doesn't mean that humans don't do stuff. It means precisely that humans do do stuff because that's how God structured the whole world. And so Jesus comes as the true human who is also the living embodiment of Israel's God. And when the later creeds say he's both divine and human, that's a kind of abstraction. We don't know what the word human means until we look at Jesus. We don't know what the word divine means until we look at Jesus. When we look at Jesus, all the categories get remade. may take a lifetime to get our heads around it. I'm going to stop in a minute and take some questions, but let me just say, drawing this first session together, 
That's why when Jesus articulates his agenda in passages like the Sermon on the Mount, this is not just grand moral teaching. Yes, Jesus is a teacher. Someone was saying yesterday, of course, wonderful teacher. But what he's basically teaching about is what is going on in his own ministry. People used to say, old liberal theologians used to say, well, of course, Jesus talked about God, but then the church talked about Jesus, as though the church had sort of falsified Jesus' message because they turned him into a God which he never imagined. No. When Jesus talked about God, he was explaining the significance of what he was doing. Think of Luke 15. When Jesus is having a party with all the wrong people, and the Pharisees and the others object, how dare you go and have supper with these people? Jesus tells the story about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the two lost sons and the father. The father who goes running down the road because he's seen the prodigal coming home. Jesus tells stories about God in order to explain what he was doing. Go figure. And therefore the agenda is not, here's how to be a super person, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, etc., etc. When I used to hear those as a boy, I used to think, well, please, is two out of ten okay? You know, because I'm not actually doing very well on most of those. But, you know, the point is this. This is not a list of sort of super qualities to see if you can marry up to them. This is the agenda of how the kingdom happens. We, people in our culture say, if there were a God, why would he let the Holocaust happen? Why would he let 9-11 happen? Why would God this? Why would God that? And we have this image of this big, powerful God upstairs. And if he really was the managing director, the CEO of the whole operation, he ought to send in the tanks and clean it out. Let me tell you, when God wants to establish his kingdom, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek. He sends in the poor in spirit. He sends in the brokenhearted. He sends in the hungry for justice people. He sends in the people who have got nothing except hope and trust and faith and who will get murdered for it as well. And by the time the bullies and the powerful have woken up to what's going on, the meek and the poor in spirit and the hungry for justice people have got out there and they have housed the homeless and they've built schools and they've established hospitals and they've brought healing and hope and they have launched with Jesus the project of the kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And that's why the challenge is not to the rich young rulers, say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We hear that in terms of how can I go to heaven? No, eternal life in the Jewish sense is the coming age. There is a coming age in which the world will be transformed. We won't escape this world. The world will be healed and rescued. The question is, will we be part of that when it happens? And Jesus says, sell up and follow me. And he issues different challenges to everybody he speaks to, to you and to me. But it always comes with take up your cross and follow me. And in the second half, we'll talk a bit more about what the cross is actually doing there and how that all plays out. Let's um, just, just pause for a minute. Uh, just let's be quiet for a moment, and then we'll take some questions. Just, just for a